Good morning, Lake City. Well, I'm excited to be able to share with you today what the Bible and specifically what 1 Timothy says about one of the hot potato issues of our day in the church, and that is the role of women in the church, the extraordinary role of women in the church. More has probably been written about this single passage than any other section of the New Testament over the last couple of decades. So this is front and center in the discussion of much of the church today, and it is often an issue that people feel very strongly about today. I'm excited to share with you about it today, but there's also a bit of trepidation in my heart as I do so. You should know this about me. I almost decided not to preach 1 Timothy because of this very passage. (laughs) See, I don't sit at home at night uh, dreaming about what controversial subjects I can preach to you about. Uh, In fact, my personality is more likely to avoid them altogether rather than seeking them out. So, as I often do, I read over the passage with our girls during the week before I preach about it, and I did that on Tuesday night, and uh, I love to get their input and what kind of questions and comments they have about the passage I'm preaching on, and one of their responses this week was especially great. One of our daughters said, Dad, you're going to make a lot of people angry this weekend. (laughs) I said, yep, I think so. So get ready, this is going to be a fun one today. Welcome to Lake City. (laughs) But also, ladies, I want you to hear my heart on this. My goal is to give women the opportunity to flourish in their roles at Lake City Community Church. And I want you to receive this word in the way that the Apostle Paul intended it to be received to give you a sense of liberty rather than a sense of limitation. Just like Jesus did, elevating the value and the role of women, that's how Paul taught and lived his life as well. Which leads me to the introduction. So if you haven't already, once you find your notes and pull them out of the bulletin or open them up on your app, There are many controversial passages and topics in the Bible, and it's important for us as followers of Christ to know how to deal with them well. One reason is because of the culture we live in today where people don't know how to disagree agreeably. We live in such a polarized culture, especially politically and when it comes to certain social issues. So one of my prayers is that our study today here will help us grow in our ability to deal with controversial issues with a balance of grace and truth. People just don't know how to have civil conversations about things they don't agree on, especially about things they have strong opinions about. So I want to remind you of an important guiding principle that we're going to use today. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Listen, some beliefs are essential beliefs. They're crystal clear as presented in the Bible, and we must be united about those things. A good example of an essential belief is how we're saved. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. In essentials, unity. 
Other beliefs are non-essentials, and we have liberty to come to our own views on those things. The Apostle Paul calls those disputable matters in Romans 14. Such things as the day we choose to worship, or certain dietary restrictions that we choose to follow. It's important for us to study those things and to develop our own views, but we must also give room for people to come to differing convictions about those things, hence the word liberty. And finally, in all things we must show charity, which is an old English word for love. It's critically important for us to learn how to discuss our differences in a spirit of love. That's most important. So in all things, in all of our discussions, and even in the midst of our different points of view, we strive to have them in love. Second, the context here is the public worship services of a church. And as always, the context of a passage that we try to understand is very important. Paul is instructing Timothy specifically here about the public worship services in the community of the redeemed. Why do I say that? We've seen that already, and we also see that over in 1 Timothy chapter 3. Listen to this. Paul writes, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God. You see, some people have tried to stretch Paul's words that we're reading today and apply them in the marketplace and to government and to school settings and to other relationships and culture. And I don't believe that is correct. Paul clearly had one context in mind, and that's the public worship services of the church. And that's important for us to understand heading into this passage. Third, there are three general understandings of this passage that are helpful to be aware of. And I want to outline those for you. So first of all, there's what is called the hierarchical view. And that's where the offices of elder and deacon are closed to women. And that male leadership is a pattern in the life of churches, but other areas of life as well. A second view is the complementarian view, which says that men and women are equal in dignity and honor, but have distinction in roles. The first view would say that as well, but they parse it a little bit differently. In 1 Timothy 2, this view is that Paul limits women from serving as elders and teaching pastors in the church in Ephesus and all churches today. But women may serve as deacons and in other leadership roles in the church. And finally, the egalitarian view is that 1 Timothy, this passage we're looking at, was correcting a first century problem and is not normative, therefore, to other churches today. Therefore, there's absolutely no limit as to the role of women in the church today. So churches with women as senior pastors and teaching pastors obviously hold that position. So three different views of this passage of this question in general. And I want you to know up front that here at Lake City that we are unashamedly complementarian. So that's the perspective you're going to hear this message from today. I also want to acknowledge that there are variations even within the complementarian position. And those primarily have to do with how this view is applied. 
They wrestle over things such as when and where women are to lead and teach in the church. And we're not going to get into that question specifically today because that is a discussion the elders plan to have this winter and write a position paper on, and so I don't want to preempt that uh, this morning. But one of the reasons I wanted to mention these three views about the role of women in the church is that it's possible that you have been introduced or exposed to one of these positions, but not the others. And in that case, I believe you owe it to yourself to consider the other positions and how they sort of line up according to God's word. Finally, we're looking at 1 Timothy 2, but there are four other passages to consider as well when, in regard to this question. And you need to study all of these passages in addition to our text today to have a complete understanding. And that means I won't be able to answer every question because we're only looking at one of these passages. And I'm not even going to try to answer every question out there today. There's another time for that. Today, we're focusing on 1 Timothy 2 and also on the question of how to approach a controversial passage such as this one. So with that, let's jump right in and let's read our text for today. Please grab your Bible and open up to 1 Timothy 2. If you don't have a Bible of your own, please take one from the chair in front of you and turn to page 991. 1 Timothy 2.8 is where I'll begin reading. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Please join me in prayer. So, Father, we thank you for your word that by inspiration Paul has written down for us to learn from. And we ask God for discernment and understanding that your spirit would be our teacher today. We ask for the grace to deal with a passage that's tough and is controversial. Help me not to overstate and not to shy away from anything that you want to be said. And Father, we confess that we bring all of our past experiences. We bring our own views to this text. We certainly have been affected by the culture we live in today. And so, would you just let us push that aside to try to hear what you say to us by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's look at our text now. And we begin with verse 8, which is Paul's instruction to the men. We're in week three of our series playbook, God's design for a winning team. And in verse 8, Paul returns to the very first play in the playbook, which is prayer. Again, verse 8 says this, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. And as Reg pointed out so well last week in verse 1 of this chapter, Paul says this is the first priority the number one play in the playbook. 
the most basic play that we have as a church is prayer. This is where we must begin if we want to be a winning team and if we want to honor our coach. When you watch a game on television, just about any sport in fact, it's not uncommon to hear the commentators talk about the keys of the game. Well, if they're going to win tonight, they have to do this and this and this. These three keys are the keys to winning. And the coach of our team points out that priority number one is to focus on prayer. That's the number one key to our team. And here Paul has a special word to the men about their role in prayer. He begins with the words, in every place. And I believe that means in every congregation, in every house church there in Ephesus. But it would go beyond that to everywhere. Make sure that prayer is priority number one. Much like a coach might say, well, establish the running game first and then everything falls into place. Paul says, establish the prayer and everything will fall into place. Lifting up holy hands, he says, and that's a reference to the normal posture of prayer in Jewish gatherings of worship. And actually the emphasis probably isn't so much on posture as it is on the fact that holy hands represent a holy life. The basis of effective prayer is the righteous life from which it radiates. And that phrase, without anger or quarreling, reminds us that God wants harmony as well as holiness in his people. Harmony is important. By the way, I don't believe this verse indicates only the men are to pray when the church gathers. I think what Paul is saying here is that he wants the men to sort of set the pace and to be leaders, to be models in prayer. That's what he's urging here. So men, I would ask you today, ask us, how are you doing in prayer? The women of Lake City are great prayer warriors. How are we doing? Are you coming out to our prayer focus groups? to the concerts of prayer that we offer, to other prayer opportunities? Have you established prayer as one of your priorities? Well, now that Paul has singled out the men, he turns naturally to the ladies. And that's why verse 9 begins with the words, likewise also the women. So next we see Paul's instructions to the women. And Paul is giving instructions in two areas Specifically, first of all, he offers guidelines about appearance, and then he addresses their leadership role in the church. So first, regarding appearance, appearance in verses 9 and 10. Let's begin with verse 9, where Paul writes, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire. So let's pause there before we go on to verse 10 because there's three words that need to be noticed about the appearance of women. Respectable, modestly, and self-control. That sounds a little matronly, even old-fashioned, unless you understand what Paul is getting at here. Neither of those ideas is supported by the actual terms that Paul chose. So an understanding of these words, ladies, will help you know how to get dressed for church. And the first one is the word respectable, as in respectable apparel. 
And the idea of that word is appropriate or proper. It also can be used to mean orderly or well-arranged. So there's a lot of freedom in that word, a lot of room to fit in with whatever the day or the place that you're living. Respectable apparel. The second word Paul uses is modestly. And the idea is that of respectable humility. In other words, don't attempt to be the fashion setter when you come to the place of worship. Don't try to direct attention to yourself by the way you dress. The purpose of gathering in Christian community is to focus the attention on our Lord rather than on what you're wearing. Modestly. And the third word is the word self-control, and it's the idea of using discretion. This requires that you pay close attention ahead of time as to how you will appear. So the point of Paul's words here is don't be distracting, plan ahead, and be modest. Use self-control when you get dressed for church. Don't worry, ladies, it's going to get hotter still. But uh, Paul makes his instruction even clearer now by adding some things to avoid. He says, to be adorned not with braided hair and gold or pearls, or costly attire. And some women read that and they wonder to themselves, does that mean I can't braid my hair, that I can't wear jewelry at all? What is Paul saying? This caught my attention, especially because I have a couple of daughters who are especially adept at braiding their hair. And I believe what Paul is addressing here is what was going on in the church of Ephesus where some women were braiding gold and pearls into their hair and other costly jewels in order to draw attention to themselves. In so doing, it drew attention away from the Lord, the very one they came to worship. And of course, it would also cause the women who were poor in the congregation to be envious or to feel less respected and important. Chuck Swindoll quotes a Greek scholar who summed it up like this, and I quote, Braids in those days represented fortunes. They were articles of luxury and extravagance. The Christian woman is warned not to indulge in such extravagance, end quote. So Paul wasn't discouraging the ladies from looking nice or dressing well. He merely expected the women to avoid silly, ostentatious extremes even like we see in our own day-to-day. Paul's point was to avoid dressing in any way that flaunts your wealth or distracts people from focusing on the Lord. So that's what to avoid. Now, if you want to know what to put your attention into, Paul gets to that next in verse 10, and this is what he says. But with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works... Here's what you should focus on. Focus on being adorned with good works, Paul says. And I don't think we need to dwell any longer on this point because most of you display great great discretion in this area. There may be a few for whom these truths are new concepts, but for the most part, I commend you ladies for living out what Paul is describing here. All right, Paul transitions now from appearance and adornment to behavior. He's still giving instruction about what's expected of the women in the church, and specifically now regarding their leadership in the church. 
So if you thought the part about appearance was a little heated, it's going to get even hotter, right? Verse 11 is where we pick it up. Paul says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. And as I mentioned earlier, that there are different ways to explain what Paul writes here and what God intends ladies to do in the church. We don't have time to go into all the different views in any depth, but I just simply want to share with you how I see it. Here's how I make sense of these words. If you take what Paul says here, along with the other passages, those four passages on the subject of the role of women in the church, I don't believe that he's saying that women must be absolutely silent in the church at all. I believe that his point is, let the men lead. Let the men be the quarterbacks in the church. And again, the context is the community of the redeemed. And when the men in the community of the redeemed lead in a biblical way with servant leadership, the women are usually fine with that. When the pastors and the elders of the church lead in such a way as they're putting the welfare of the women above their own, and they're lifting up women, most women don't care if they ever have to worry about preparing to teach before the church on the weekends. In fact, when that happens, the women are like, I appreciate our leaders. Let me tell you about our leaders. They care for us. They love us. They exalt us. They appreciate our gifts. They consistently have our best interests in mind. They free us up from the distractions so that we can do what God has called us to do. Women don't have a hard time with selfless leaders overseeing them, typically. In fact, that's what Jesus taught as how we are to lead. That's what Jesus modeled himself. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. And Paul said that Jesus is our model to follow when we lead. Don't look out for your own interests, but look out for the interests of others. Philippians chapter 2. Women appreciate being under that kind of leadership. I think most women don't even mind submitting to that kind of leadership. So let, let me now talk about that word submissiveness right in that verse 11. Okay? Here's my favorite definition of submission. This applies to men and women alike because we all have our place of submission. Submission is trusting God to accomplish his will in my life through those he puts in authority over me. Trusting God to accomplish his will in my life through those he puts in authority over me. Now that word submission has fallen on hard times largely because many men are poor leaders. If men were better examples of what it means to submit to Christ, it would be so much easier for women to submit to our leadership. So let me talk to the men for just a minute about this. Ladies, feel free to listen in. This is really, however, for the men, okay? Men, isn't it hard enough to submit at times to the Lord Jesus Christ, even though he is perfect? Think about your own life. Even though we can trust him 100% of the time and that he has our best interests in mind, it's still hard to submit at times. So it shouldn't be hard for us to understand that it can be difficult for our wife at times to submit to us 
especially knowing that we get moody and selfish and inconsistent and immature at times. And by the way, when we're like that, that's when we need to go to our wife and apologize to them about being an awful quarterback for the team. I did that just a couple of weeks ago. And the only reason I say a couple of weeks ago is because my wife has been gone for a couple of weeks. <laughs> she just got back into town from Africa on Thursday night. So we've been there. Ladies, I get why there is chatter in the huddle at times. I wouldn't want to follow our leadership either much of the time. We make it so hard for you sometimes. We aren't the unselfish leaders God has called us to be. And by the way, ladies, here's what you do when we aren't leading in the way that God has called us to lead. Listen, with as much respect and restraint as possible, confront us in love and let us know where we let you down, please. And if we don't get it, if we don't see where we're not leading well, you need to go perhaps even at times and get some support. Time out, coach. I love the quarterback you gave me and I want to follow the quarterback, but he's not leading in a way that's going to help our team win. I want to help him and I want, I want to follow him, but I need some help. In other words, there is a time to widen the circle and pull someone in to help you get his attention. Listen, ladies, if you love us, you don't look forward to embarrassing us. But there is a time when you may need to say to your quarterback, Honey, I love you. I, I want to follow you as my quarterback. But there are some things that I need from you that I'm just not getting. I'm here. I, I'm all for you. I want to follow you and honor you. But I'm going to love you enough to widen the circle and ask someone we both respect to speak into our relationship. Speak truth to us in love. They may tell me that I need to just simply submit more to you, to my quarterback, because you're my quarterback. Or they may be going to say, you need to step up and be the quarterback you need to be so that we will be stronger as a couple. But I want you to understand, the reason that I'm doing this is because I love you and I'm committed to you fully. That's the way to approach it. That's what a loving, respectful wife does. She doesn't walk out. She speaks the truth with love and grace. That's where community like this comes in. And friends, that's one of the big reasons we offer re-engage marriage ministry here at Lake City every Thursday night. It's to help our marriages. It's to coach us and things like this. We want to encourage the men and women of Lake City to grow in our marriages, to get the input and the support that you need, and that's what re-engage is for. Jackie and I have gone through that material. We love the tools and the perspective that it has given both of us. It's great stuff, and we commend it to you. Now, men, I want to tell you there's a reason that women sometimes can't be quiet. Okay, their lives aren't in a good place because they're being led by a man who doesn't know the offense. But women, you also need to know that one reason that it's hard for you to submit to your quarterback is simply because of the fall. In Genesis 3, we're told that sin entered the world. And that means that you now have a sinner for a quarterback. 
Because all men have a sin nature, and that means that it's going to be hard to follow him at times. He's going to make stupid decisions at times. But ladies, you have a sin nature too. And God said that one of the consequences of the fall is that the woman will desire to take over the leadership. Listen to Genesis 3.16. Your desire, this is part of the judgment from the fall, it says your desire, this is to the woman, will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Ladies, one reason you have a hard time submitting to your husband is because it's one of the consequences of the fall. It's natural for you to think that you can do it better. In fact, you probably can do it better. But that's not the plan of God. The coach has a plan, and it's for the quarterback to be in charge in the huddle and to lead the team. By the way, God's solution to this problem of sin is for both man and woman to repent and to get right with God and to ask for God's grace to have a healthy relationship with each other to be filled with the grace of God to lead and to submit because both require supernatural help. Men need God's help to love and lead how God wants us to, like Christ. And women, you need God's help too to respect and follow your quarterback as God wants you to. And I want to tell you, ladies, I want to say to the ladies today, I want to ask for your forgiveness for gender stupidity. On behalf of the men, we ask you for forgiveness because we have not led you like Christ leads the church. And I marvel at your patience. But I will promise you this. Here at Lake City, we are trying and we will try to lead you with your best interests in mind. And we welcome you coming to us when you see things that we have missed. I want you to know that we go to women regularly and solicit input and advice. We understand that we need that. The elders and pastors of this church are open and seeking advice because we want the women of Lake City to thrive and to feel honored and loved. So gals, this is why submission is so hard for you because A, guys don't lead that well often and B, sometimes you don't let Christ help you play the role God has given you to play. Again, your role has nothing to do with brains or ability. It has everything to do with the assignment God has given to you. And this is why, by the way, that I can't agree when people try to explain away 1 Timothy 2 as a cultural thing. Well, Paul said this to the Ephesians because of the problems that were going on in Ephesus in that day, but it doesn't apply to today is what you sometimes hear or read. Let's see how cultural Paul's reasons are for this instruction that we just read. Let's go to verse 13 now and to the basis of Paul's instruction. Verse 13 says, For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Here's the first reason that Paul gives for this instruction on the role of women in the church. It's because of the order of creation. That verse begins with the word for, verse 13. Paul's giving the reason for this instruction. And there is nothing here pointing to culture, nothing about the conditions in Ephesus that led Paul to write this down. On the contrary, Paul indicates this was the design of God from the beginning. This was God's game plan ever since he created Adam and Eve. 
Now, if you know your Bible, you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 11.3. Let's look at that as well. There, Paul writes this. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. So there's these layers of submission built into the created order. Men submit to Christ, Christ submits to God, and wife submits to husband. That's the creation order that God established in the outset. And listen, this is so countercultural that we have a hard time, I think, even grasping it sometimes. But a good illustration is the Trinity. Think about that for a minute. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All equal in value. Three persons equal in value, but distinct in terms of their roles. And that same pattern in the Trinity extends both to marriage and the church. Men and women are equal in value, but have different God-given roles. So what God is saying is that it's because of creation. You each have your roles. You are both equal and dignified in honor and in value. There's no distinction between male and female in Christ, but that doesn't mean you have the same roles. There is equality, but not sameness, just like the Godhead. It's not because men are smarter. If anything, it's just the opposite case. It's not because men are better leaders. Again, often just the opposite. But somebody has to be the quarterback, and God chose man to be the quarterback in the home. And that's also his game plan in the church. So women of Lake City, we want you to know that our desire is to honor you. We want to exalt you. We want this church to be the place you've always dreamed about being part of, where men constantly are asking, how can we serve the women? And when we don't do that well, we ask you to admonish us in a way that's consistent with God's word, to help us see our weaknesses, to encourage us to grow, and to do that with great patience. Because we want your lives to be blessed and for you to celebrate servant leadership that blesses you. All right, back to 1 Timothy 2. The first reason for this exhortation is because of the order of creation. That's God's design from the beginning. Here's the second reason. This is verse 14. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. What's reason number two? Because Eve was deceived. By the way, Paul is under no illusion as to Adam's role in the fall. He mentions one verse here about Eve's deception, but if you look over at Romans 5, Paul devotes almost an entire chapter to Adam's mess up. So if you really want to trace sin back to its origin, you can trace it back to Adam because the first sin was the failure of Adam to lead. But the point is that while Adam failed to lead and chose to sin willfully, Eve was deceived. Adam let Eve down in the beginning by failing to lead and protect. And for that reason, Adam is held responsible for the fall of the human race. That's clear in Romans 5. But in the end, God says that's a reason for the, or, for the order of 
leadership in the church. So here's the gig. God says that in marriage and in the church, the relationships are defined because of the roles that I established in the beginning. And it's going to be a challenge because of sin. You're going to have to work things out. God says, I'm here to help you. I will give you the grace that you need if you follow my plan. And in the church, Paul affirms that while men and women are equal, God holds man responsible for leading. It's an issue not of ability, but of assignment. And beloved, that means that the man has the role of teaching and exercising authoritative leadership in the church. And what I take that to mean is that the role of elder and teaching pastor are therefore limited to men who are qualified, which is what Paul is going to describe next as he begins chapter 3. Those are the two reasons Paul gives by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again, please note, neither of them are cultural. And that tells us that this principle applies to all churches, not just to the church of Ephesus. All right, if the woman can't lead the church, what is, supposed, what is she supposed to do to get some dignity? Answer, verse 15, where Paul describes the extraordinary opportunity for women. Let's look at that verse. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. So Paul sort of flips things here by describing the extraordinary opportunities God has given to women of all ages. And that word saved is key for our understanding in this verse because it can be translated in many different ways. That's the common New Testament word for salvation from sin. But it can also mean to rescue, to heal, or to preserve safe and sound, or even to deliver. And I think it's clear that Paul is not teaching that women are saved from the wages of sin by bearing children. That would contradict everything else Paul has written in the New Testament about salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone. So there are different ways that people have understood this verse. For the sake of time, I'm just going to cut to the chase. This is what I believe Paul is saying. Women are given purpose and dignity by raising godly children. In other words, gals, you don't need to lead in the church because I have something even better for you. You have an extraordinary opportunity that no one else has. You get to give birth to and lead and shape the eternal lives of those that are made in the image of God. Women, you get to raise up the next generation of leaders that are going to make this world the place that God wants it to be. Gals, you have the most important job in the world. Pastor Todd Wagner, who was a huge resource for this message today, quotes an old Spanish proverb that goes like this. An ounce of mama is worth a ton of priest. <laughs> an ounce of mama is worth a ton of priest. And what that means is that when mom does her job well, and when her children listen to her, they won't need to call me someday and say, Pastor, my life is all messed up. What do I do? When mothers pour into their kids godliness and faith and self-control and love, that's worth a ton of worship services. So ladies, you want dignity, you want significance in your life, you be a mom. You be a godly mom. Make disciples. 
Invest in your children and your grandchildren every chance you get. You love them and lead them spiritually. Paul's point is that though women don't have the leading role in the church, they typically do have the leading role in the home in terms of time with their children, which often equates to spiritual influence. Women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. In other words, listen, if you are a biological mama and you don't live with faith and love and holiness and self-control, that's a tragedy because God has entrusted to you a disciple who will sit at your feet for 18 years. Can I tell you something about my sweet dear wife, Jackie? We have five kids, as you know, and it's amazing for me to watch the way Jackie loves and serves and invests in her children and her grandchildren. She is such an intentional mama. She's devoted to those kids and praying for them and planning events for them and investing in them and talking to them about the Lord Jesus. In other words, she gets this. She understands what her most important job is, just like most of you do as well. Now, I also want to say this today because I know that some of you do not have biological children to invest in. Clearly, God's plan is not for every woman to marry and have children. So what about them? I want to show you a picture and tell you a story as I close. This is a picture of a gal named Henrietta Mears. How many of you know Henrietta Mears and her story? Great, a few of you do. Humanly speaking, some of you came to know Christ and have grown in your relationship with Christ because of this gal. If you were influenced by Campus Crusade for Christ or Young Life or Billy Graham, you were also influenced through Henrietta Mears. Those three men are commonly called Mears men. Henrietta Mears died at the age of 73, almost 50 years ago now. But she was an inspirational Sunday school teacher and Christian education director and author who influenced many, many girls and boys in her day. She never had her own children, but she built into the lives of girls and boys in her life, throughout her lifetime. And she especially understood that the church needs leaders, men to lead. And she was especially gifted at mentoring them. By the way, Henrietta was courting a guy when she was 20 years old. She was thinking about marrying this guy, and it was right when her mother passed away. And so the pastor called her in, and and he said to her, Henrietta, the spiritual heritage that came from your grandmother down to your mother is now going to you. And you need to be faithful with the heritage that you have been given. And Henrietta took one look at the guy that she was courting, and she said, I don't think that's who God wants me to marry. And so she broke it off. There was never another guy who wooed her heart again. But she wooed the hearts of guys to study the word of God for the rest of her life. Billy Graham once said, next to his wife and his mother, Henrietta Mears had more impact on my life than anyone. Guys, get some of that. So you may not be a biological mama, but you can still be a spiritual mother. You can have great impact and dignity in God's kingdom for his glory. 
And you can show up on that day before the Lord. And he might say, well, what did you do? Well, I led a Fortune 500 company. Great. Next. Or you can say, well, I poured my life into about 400 men, including the founder of Young Life and the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ and the guy who preached the gospel to more living human beings than anyone else in history. I did everything to pour my life into them. Well done, Henrietta. Enter into the joy of your master. So don't be distracted by what anyone else around you is doing. Ladies, you be a mama. Have your career if you want one, but save your best stuff for home. And raise disciples who in faith love and follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't have biological children or they're not around any longer for you to really mentor them in the same way, you have a place just as well. You know that we are looking for folks right now to disciple high school students and middle school students and elementary age students and college age students and pretty much across the board. So Henrietta, jump in. And Henry, you can jump in too. We need you. You can be part of this. Let's talk about some application as I close. Some next steps. Number one, I will maximize my God-given gifts and opportunities. Every believer is given gifts and opportunities by God, and you're responsible for how you use them for the Lord. Friend, find out where God wants you to make disciples and get engaged. Men, it's time to step up and lead, both in home and at church. And when you blow it, you need to humbly, we need to humbly repent and apologize. And when it comes to our relationships with our sisters in the church, we need to treat them with all dignity and respect. And be cautious not to go any further in our restrictions than the Bible is clear about. Dads, go have your careers too. Work hard. Maybe even have a toy or two in the garage. But if you don't save your best for home, if you aren't making disciples at home, you have failed, sir. And while you're at it, you need to serve and exalt that wife of yours. Set an example for those kids of yours to see. Women, we want to champion the importance of the role that God has given only to women. That of raising up disciples of the next generation as only you can. For most women, that includes being a mother. And by the way, ladies, there are so many places that you can plug in and use your gifts here at Lake City Community Church. Even if you don't have the opportunity to be an elder or to preach in our worship services, every gift God has given you has a place to be used here, and we need you. So we want men and women to flourish in our church as co-laborers in the gospel and fellow heirs with Christ. Now that I've upset some of you a little bit, I want to take the last couple of minutes in closing to talk about what to do with that. This is incredibly important. What do you do when you disagree with someone and you care greatly about the issue? Two things I want to suggest. First of all, if it's black and white and crystal clear, I will stand for it. If it has to do with anything the Bible is crystal clear about, speak up, stand up, divide over it if need be. If someone is teaching against the deity of Christ or salvation by faith in Christ alone, 
Speak up and stand up for the truth of God's word. The problem is all too often we argue over the unclear and we ignore the things that are crystal clear in God's word. Which leads me to number two. Second, if it's not black and white and crystal clear, unity is more important than uniformity. If it's not crystal clear in God's word, then unity is always more important than having the exact same view. Our unity, our love in Christ, always trumps agreeing with each other on every little disputable matter. And so I'd suggest that you write in the margin next to 1 Timothy 2 today the words tough passage. Tough passage, just to remind you that when you read this passage and others like it, that you need to remember this is debated. And remember that unity is more important than uniformity. I'd also write down Romans 14, which I mentioned earlier, where Paul describes how to deal with these issues. Romans 14. We understand there will be different views on the matter of the role of women in the church, but as in all things, we believe that a disposition of love toward those with a different view is in order. And if you don't happen to agree with where I stand on this passage, we want you to know that you are still welcome here at Lake City. We don't want you to feel like uh, you need to leave or you're unnecessary. Like many areas of the Christian life, we are going to come to differing convictions at times. God wants us to keep growing together as a family and learning together and serving him. So let's do that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for creating us in your image. Male and female, you created us. And it's our challenge to work that out in daily life. Help us, we pray. We confess we need it. And Father, we are so grateful that you have redeemed us in the Lord Jesus Christ and his death and resurrection for us. Help us to live that out in love as well. Father, my prayer for us as a church family is that even in areas where we don't all agree, that you will give us a great amount of love and unity and that it will never cause division. May we honor and glorify you in that regard, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.